Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how homicides are solved when bodies decompose in extreme environments. A body that's placed outside that's 100 to 120 pounds, it'll be a skeleton within 10 days by the time it's placed outside. Dr David Carter is the Director of Forensic Sciences at Chaminade University in Honolulu. He's spent over two decades attending crime scenes and studying what happens to bodies after death. His work helps police, medical examiners and coroners better understand decomposition in unique environments and to solve crimes. It was immediately clear to me that there was one technique available to us that would really help try and get to establishing the identity of this person. The Hawaiian Islands are known for their picturesque landscapes, welcoming tropical climate and unique blend of flora and fauna. With warm weather, humidity and plenty of rainfall, what happens when there's a murder in paradise and a corpse decomposes in such an extreme environment. Like normal, I I was minding my own business. I do remember this day. um, I I was contacted by phone, and I was told that they've discovered a couple of decedents, uh, one of whom was located in a vehicle west of Honolulu in a more rural part of Oahu. And then there was a, a second adult male decedent. I don't recall ever being asked to review the second decedent. Really, what they asked me to take a look at were the remains of the male that was found in this vehicle, which really was only about 20 meters away from a major highway in Hawaii. But the grass had grown so high that this car had been sitting there for, I was told this decedent was last known to be alive 17 days before they contacted me. So... I remember thinking about that whole scenario, you know, wondering how many cars had driven by this decedent over the course of 17 days and their remains are just sitting in in the, the driver's seat of this vehicle decomposing. I know that the cause of death was related to a firearm. I couldn't tell you how many shots were associated with this death. And this is an example of a case where I was asked to come and help try and establish the identity of a person, okay? And there's a number of different questions that I get asked to contribute to. This is the investigator's point of view, right? I have two adult male decedents. They look very similar in terms of their height and weight. They look very similar in terms of their build and their skin color. And we're really not quite sure the identities of these people. And so I was asked to come in and see if there's any way I could help find any identifying characteristics with this. Was this actually at the actual scene? Or do you get invited to the scene? 
Sometimes I get asked to go to the scene, but usually by the time I'm contacted, the decedent has already been transported to the medical examiner facility, which you may hear me refer to as the morgue. So this decedent was already in the facility and by the time I got there, this was shortly before they were going to do the external examination and the autopsy. And based on the condition, it, it was immediately clear to me that there was one technique available to us that would really help try and get to establishing the identity of this person. And it's a, te- it's a type of photography called infrared photography. So when you go to a morgue, for example, or an actual site, what do you take with you? What are you prepared for when you go? <laughs> well, uh, it's a good thing I'm an Eagle Scout, you know, because <laughs> you have got to be prepared for anything. Uh, I think we talked yesterday, you know, sometimes these outdoor scenarios, um, one of the most helpful tools you got to bring along with you is a spoon, you know, because sometimes <laughs> you got to collect soils or, or collect material. In Hawaii, we have a lot of sand too, because we have a lot of beaches. Um, I take, uh, I don't even know if I could tell you everything I have because it's so much, uh, camera, um, I have forms that I've made for myself over the years. Um, I find having a really effective form is helpful. You know, a lot of people may take this for granted. When I first started consulting on cases about almost 20 years ago, you know, I really just took a, a book I had dedicated to that case and I would take my notes. And you're going to laugh at me, but every time I would leave, I'd get back to my office and I'd say, oh, I forgot to ask them this. Or, oh, I forgot to write down the case number. Over the years, I've just developed a form and I find that allows my brain to kind of remain a little free so I can think about other stuff while I'm there. So I have a camera, I have a form, I have tape measures, I have evidence markers that are uh, either made of plastic that I can set on the ground, or sometimes you have adhesive evidence markers that if you need to take a photo of something that's on a, a wall, you know, a vertical surface, it's basically just a crime scene kit that's been modified for decomposition cases. Um, I find, a, along with the spoon, another really helpful tool to have in your kit is a, a urine specimen container. It's usually a smaller plastic container. And it's over the years, I've just noticed it's a handy size to have, you know, it it's allowed, sterile. Yeah, it's sterile. Um, so I and I have to take a material with me to help sterilize stuff. I always have ethanol with me. Um, lots of containers, lots of bags. I hope that answers your question. But that kit is full, full of things and um, batteries, backup batteries. One tip I may give to some people, and it's becoming more, more and more difficult to do this, but I always try and make sure I have a camera that can run on something like a AA battery uh, rather than a rechargeable battery. Um, it's not so much an issue in Hawaii because it never gets very cold, but I have been at really cold cases before uh, in North America where the temperature is so low that your batteries die right away. And I find sometimes you're in a scenario where you can't take any more pictures because the cold has zapped your batteries. But if your camera operates on a AA battery, worst case scenario, you can always go to the petrol station and buy another set of batteries rather than have to try and worry about recharging your batteries because that's going to take hours. You know, So there's a lot of prep and thought 
and you really have to be prepared for all kinds of scenarios. Well, with the case of the gentleman who was shot in the car, you arrive at the morgue. What's the first thing you do? The first thing I do, usually what happens is the the morgue staff will have the decedent out and basically ready for me to just walk in and take a look. And if you're with me, you'll probably notice that the first few minutes, I I really just become a very quiet person because I'm just kind of looking at stuff. Um, you know, put on the PPE, put on the gloves, uh, all the equipment so I can touch aspects of the decedent, move things around so I, I can take a look. Since I work on decomposition cases, oftentimes there's a lot of fly larvae around. Um, you may call them maggots. So mostly the first thing I do is I really just rely on the naked eye to kind of take a look at what's going on. Uh, usually by that point, I've been given some background of the story. And like I said, just looking at the condition of this decedent, I knew right away that this was a case for infrared photography because oftentimes when a body is in a setting where it's allowed to decompose for several days, it's really common for the skin to change color. A lot of times it's described as green and purple and then brown to black. And in this particular case, the skin that was still remaining was either a dark brown or, or it was black. And that, that'll, those color changes are a natural process. They really wouldn't make you think anything in particular happened. But the problem with those color changes is it can obscure a lot of evidence. You know, who knows what was consumed by the maggots that drove decomposition because there may have been more identifying characteristics with the decedent that just got eliminated through the decomposition process. But thankfully, there was still a fair amount of skin remaining because it had dried out. And it, then we were able to use some infrared photography. So what I do is once I feel like I have a good sense for what we're dealing with based on my naked eye. What I do is then I grab a camera and I take a series of standard photographs, just like it would look like a photo you take with your smartphone. And I go around and I photograph every aspect of the decedent that I can. At that stage, have you noticed anything in particular that you're honing in on? Or is this just like a you're going from the outside to from the bigger picture to minutia? Oh, no. By then, I've definitely noticed stuff. I mean, it, this is a weird sentence about to come out, but I've seen so many decomposing bodies at this point that if there's something that's worth noticing, it probably presents itself right away to me. Um, so by that point, it, by the time I take the camera out to do the standard photography, I've probably already noticed things of interest but I'm really doing a series of like overview photographs where I'm trying to photograph everything at first, and then I will focus on particular areas of interest. For example, in this particular case, the investigators have a, had a list of possible identities, right? A list of names. And, and they told me that one of the names on this list that could be uh, this decedent was known to have extensive tattoos um, or on the face, the torso, the back, the legs. So just given that information, I, I was already focusing on the skin that was remaining 
looking for marks of tattoos. Some of them were visible to the naked eye. There was some ink uh, that could be seen. Uh, after I do the standard photography, what I then do is put on the infrared filter and I go through and I try and take photographs from the exact same position where I took the standard photograph. So if I ever have to present these photographs to someone, I can put them up right next to each other. And really the only difference is one is using standard visible light and one is using infrared light, but the perspective is exactly the same. And usually by the time the infrared photographs were done, um, those photographs right away, if, if there's tattoos visible or, or some other kind of markings, usually you can see them just on the back of the screen that's on the camera. I mean, it, it's really kind of like a, a real-time approach, the infrared photography, where you get your results right away. What is the infrared doing to the ink? Is it is it changing reflection? What's absorption? What's it doing to make the tattoo more visible or more clear? What it's doing, it's eliminating most of the light spectrum. So what our eyes are picking up on is the, in the US, we would say the Roy G. Biv, you know, the, the colors of, of the, the spectrum. Yeah. yeah. What the infrared filter does is it really cuts that out. So you're just seeing the, the R, the infrared bit of the spectrum. And so basically what it's doing is it's putting a filter over our eyeball and we're only seeing a portion of what becomes visible because the rest of the spectrum is basically getting in the way of our eyes. What is it about the tattoos? Is it better if they are black or blue or colored? Does it make any difference? In my experience, I haven't noticed a difference because I have photographed tattoos that to me look like they're just black ink and that's it. I have used infrared photography on tattoos that clearly have multiple colors in them. I, I've seen yellows, reds, um, and usually there's an outline portion that isn't something that looks like a black or sometimes older tattoos to my eyes come across a little more gray. Um, but in my experience, I've not really found um, a color that works better or worse with infrared photography. It seems to be a pretty good approach, approach generally speaking. Does the color of the skin of the person have any difference? That's a good question, and I don't know. Sometimes, by the time I get involved, the color of the skin has changed so much that I couldn't even tell you what the person's skin color was during life. You know, that they could have had a much lighter complexion, but by the time I've got there, their skin is really dark brown or, or really black. So I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good one. So in this case, what did you what did you discover from the tattoos? Were they helpful? Uh, yes, they were extremely helpful. In fact, when I was done taking the photographs, I showed one of them, just turning the camera to the detective just to show him it, this was a photograph of the face that had a lot of unique tattoos. And by unique, I mean the tattoos were names of people. Uh, they were phrases, a lot of words. And the detective had a look at the photo just on the camera screen. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't shared them on a disc or a drive. He just looked on the screen and basically made it clear to me that they now had a clear path to establishing the identity of this person. So 
they were ready to move on with the case before I even gave them the files of the actual photos. That's how clearly tattoos can come out with this technique. At the scene, what else are you looking for and giving, trying to get clues from that can give you some sort of indication as to how long this person has been deceased? There's a number of processes that you would say are common when remains decompose. Um, uh, usually you're going to be looking for the presence of maggots, fly larvae, uh, especially with a case like this where, yeah, the decedent was in a built environment, but this is a vehicle out in a grassland where insects are able to get into a car. So the, just the fact that insects are present lets you know that, okay, this person's remains were in a habitat that you know, facilitated access to a decomposer. A lot of times, one question I ask myself, and this is probably the most question that I get approached to answer, is you're provided the background information about when this last person, when this person was last known to be alive. And in this case, it was 17 days before. Usually a, a really important question comes down to, does the extent of decomposition that I'm seeing does that look consistent with the amount of time that this that has passed since this person was last known to be alive? Um, and in this case, 17 days, and with the amount of decomposition that I could see, that made sense to me. You know, now let's look at it another way, just really quickly. If if the investigator would have come to me and said, Hey, we found this set of remains, could you tell me? how long they had been dead by looking at them, that's really not possible to do. But knowing that this person had been out there about two weeks looking at the extent of this decomposition, and, and they were really confident with that last known alive 17 days, that would allow you to say, yeah, it, that is a consistent last known alive. Um, so I'm looking for that, and I'm looking for any signs of decomposition processes that, you know, I would consider common, you know, and that would be how the body disarticulates, what areas of the body are still present. Uh, some parts of the body tend to decompose before other parts of the body. So I, I'm mostly looking for, I guess you boils down to, is this what I would expect to see, you know? And so it's, what are the, what's the state of the remains? Um, what, what do we have left to work with? What color is the skin? Has it changed? Are there decomposers present? If so, what are they? Uh, so there's kind of a, a checklist that I work through to try and give me some insight into what's going on. What is the general order of decomposition? What parts of the body are more likely to decompose first and disarticulate? And how does the environment affect that, particularly in Hawaii? Well, I'm going to give you the standard forensic science answer. It depends. Now, in this case, we were working with a decedent that was sitting in the driver's seat of a vehicle. So they were in a basically a sitting position, and the seat was reclined a little bit. You know, nothing out of the ordinary from how most people would drive a car. Places where... Regions of the body where decomposition fluids are allowed to accumulate tend to decompose more extensively. 
because they're kept moist and those fluids are full of microorganisms, particularly bacteria. So for me, I would, in that scenario where a decedent is sitting in the driver's seat of a car, I would expect the areas around their hips and, and the lower part of their spine to be the most decomposed area because that's where the fluids are going to accumulate in that seat. And that's what I saw in this particular case. In contrast, I would expect the limbs to be more preserved because they're kind of out away from the torso and they're not, the limbs don't come with a lot of moisture in them and they tend to dry out. And when things dry out, they tend to preserve. So in this scenario, I would have expected the, the lower torso area around the hip to decompose first. And, and that's what I observed in this particular case. But it depends. If you find a decedent and they're laying supine on the soil surface out in a natural habitat, it's relatively common for the face to be the first area to decompose where you'll, depending on how much time has passed, you may find a decedent where from the neck down, there's actually quite a bit of soft tissue still left. In fact, the remains may still even be bloated from the gases that accumulate, but you'll have a relatively clean skull. And that's from insects. Insects and flies in particular like natural orifices because a lot of the flies that show up to a dead body these are pregnant female flies and they're looking for a place to lay their eggs. And the natural orifice gives those eggs the best chance for survival. Eyes, mouth, nose, ears. So in some settings, if you see a decedent where they have a relatively clean skull and mandible, but the rest of the body still has a lot of soft tissue, that would that would probably fall in the category of something you would expect to see. If a person has experienced a significant amount of trauma, that process can be modified to where now the flies, they can, they can lay their eggs in areas of the face, but if someone has significant trauma to their torso where the internal organs are exposed, now that's going to attract some of the flies too. And that can change the process through which that body decomposes. So it really does come down to that it depends factor, you know, and you've got to have a good understanding of where this decedent has been located. Like for me, ideally, it's best to go to the scene. Uh, it doesn't always happen that way because then I can see it in situ and that will help me understand if this is something that is consistent with the scene findings. GPs often get called to people who, elderly people especially, who haven't been seen for a while or haven't answered their phone. And it has always intrigued me that as a GP I had to try and break into houses occasionally because the family from Western Australia and I'm in Sydney would ring and say mum hasn't answered her phone and the neighbours, you know, don't know her. And so the good old GP has to go and knock on the door and peer in the window and try and 
see if they're actually alive with the phones off the hook or have they fallen. I do know of a case where I um, got a call from a neighbour who said they'd heard a thump downstairs a week earlier and the senior gentleman had dementia and um, hadn't been seen for a week. And so you go around there and he had fallen face down into the carpet and had a heater full on for obviously that entire week. So that was a state of decomposition that no one expected to see after a week. How then would you go about assessing that case if if you were called in? Because obviously a death certificate can't, the GP can't deliver a death certificate unless you know cause of death, which makes it a police case, which makes the coroner ask some questions. So how would you approach that case, for example, if you're called to say, how long has this person been in this situation? That would actually be a, a really difficult uh, case to, to process and come to a, a firm conclusion. I, you'd probably have to rely on some other type of physical evidence, you know, like phone records or looking at their mail delivery or newspaper or something like that. Because it's really interesting. I'm glad you brought this up because that the presence of that heater and that increased temperature, you said it perfectly, is going to increase the rate of decomposition beyond what you would expect. You know, what that temperature is doing is it's increasing microbial activity because every human is carrying countless microbes. We have them on us and in us. And when it's warm, they're more active or they're, they operate at a faster rate. And you would expect that decedent to decompose faster than quote unquote normal, right? Whatever normal is. So in that scenario, you actually may be handcuffed a little bit because right now there's relatively little research taking place in these built environments. And you may just be left with saying something like, well, we're not really exactly sure when this person died. We, we have a record of when we heard the thump. That doesn't necessarily mean the person was dead though. You know, they could have just been unconscious and they may have been unconscious for over a day just laying there. Oh, broken a hip and still remain conscious. Yeah, that's right. You know, and just they're immobile. And then sadly, you know, they just slowly pass away um, in that immobile state. So that would actually be a really difficult scenario because decomposition in built environments like that, especially when temperature has been manipulated with the presence of a heater we really don't have data sets or case studies or really any research programs that focus on that. You know, one, one thing I deal with is the opposite end of the spectrum. The investigators I work with, many of them, when they reach out to me now, they'll say, Hey, Dr. Carter, I have a case I'd like you to review. The temperature was X degrees and the relative humidity was X percent because they know that's going to be the first question I'm going to ask them. Was the air conditioning on? Because we live in the tropics, right? Nobody turns the heater on in the tropics. Was the AC on? Yes or no. What's the temperature? What's the humidity? And many investigators in city and county of Honolulu now actually carry around data loggers. So when they arrive at the scene, they can write down what the temperature and the relative humidity is because it saves us 
a phone call or an email because they know I'm going to ask it. Um, I have reviewed cases in the past where the air conditioning was on in some of these places. So really the opposite effect of what you just described, where um, most cases, you know, one thing I want to make clear is most decomposition cases are natural deaths, right? So um, this is really helpful because my approach is if we study the decomposition of natural deaths and we build a large database when a homicide and a crime does take place, now we have a really good body of information that we can use to apply to these crime scenes. So I review a lot of decomposition cases that they're, they've never been associated with a crime. You know, it's just a natural death and the remains have gone undiscovered for whatever reason. Um, there was a, a case I remember, I don't remember a lot of the details of it, but it was a decedent in an apartment probably about the sixth floor of a building. So no, really no scavengers are in there. Uh, no insects are getting in there because everything's sealed up and their air conditioning was on. And based on the information, the medical examiner related to last known alive, you look at the condition that the decedent was in and normally you would say, well, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, if the person was really deceased for X days, you would expect them to be far more decomposed than what we're seeing right here. But the air conditioner was on and the cold temperature slowed down the process of decomposition. You know, this is why when a decedent arrives at the morgue, they're always placed in the cooler. You know, the cooler doesn't stop decomposition, but it will slow it down. So temperature is absolutely vital. And I, this may be, I know I've said this multiple times, but that's always one of my first questions if I'm asked to consult on a case. What's the temperature? Or for a case I'm asked to work on outside of Hawaii, I want to find out what the weather is like in that part of the world to understand how decomposition may be progressing. Can you actually work backwards? And look at the temperature, the humidity and the temperatures of those preceding days or weeks to actually build to your database. I know there's a lot of entomologists that focus on that, you know, trying to look into the, the weather that led up to the, the death. That's really important for these outdoor cases. Um, I don't spend a lot of time working on that because I, I mean, the best I can do when it comes to insects is I know how to collect them and I know how to get them to an entomologist. You know, I'm not an entomologist myself, um, but that, that is an important data set to be looking at, you know, what weather was leading up to this death, because sometimes you can have a significant weather event, you know, like a really heavy rain or something that's just really out of the ordinary, a, a heat wave. And sometimes that can affect how, how certain things takes place after the fact. When you're training and teaching, do you actually study different environments, go to different environments or take students to different environments, given that you're in a, you're in a tropical climate? Do you just use case studies or do you actually go and physically assess different climates and bodies in different conditions? That's a great question. Um, the answer is yes <laughs> to all of those things. Uh, there's a couple things that we do 
at Chaminade University. You know, we have a little area on our campus where we decompose pig carcasses, which are a commonly used. They're not, you couldn't call them a substitute for a hu- human decedent. Surrogate. Yeah, yeah, you know, because pigs and humans are different, but there are similarities there in how they decompose. You know, for example, um, flies will arrive on pig carcasses within seconds of death outdoors, and they will arrive on human decedents within seconds of death outdoors. You know, there are some consistencies. What we focus on with the, the pig carcasses on campus is we, although we put them in the same general area, part of the island, we put them out at different times of the year. You know, I, I don't know how people perceive Hawaiian weather if they think it's just, you know, um, 28 degrees C all year long and all that. We actually do have variation in our weather throughout the year. It, it is cooler in the winter and it is warmer in the summer. Um, so on campus with the, what you'd call a decomposition study or possibly an experiment, the variable we're really interested in is season. You know, are there seasonal variations between how bodies decompose? We also research the actual death investigations and use the decomposition of human decedents to build a database of decomposition. And one thing I've started to do, and other than the people I work with on campus, you're the first person I'm going to tell about this. This hasn't even been published yet. So This is a new thing. I've never seen anybody even talk about this before. One thing I've noticed when I review decomposition cases with the medical examiner, over the years, I've basically developed a system of categories in which these decomposition cases can be slotted into. For example, one category that's the most common, adult, indoor, no trauma. So you're dealing with an adult human. They've been found in a built environment. It's probably a a flat or a home and there's no trauma. You know, they've died from something unrelated to a a physical injury, right? Could be a natural cause like um, death resulting from an infection, a heart attack or something like that. Adult outdoor, no trauma. Adult outdoor trauma. One thing I've noticed, and I don't seek out these categories. These are categories that in my mind have just formed naturally because I've reviewed so many cases. Another category is adult indoor hanging. The process of decomposition and how the remains appear to the naked eye with hanging deaths is very different than with other types of death. So hanging, I've made its own category because if you have a constriction around your neck, it traps fluid up in the area of the it's head. Engorged. Yeah, and so you get um, a more rapid color change in this area where if you were just to look from the neck down, your thoughts would go one way. And if you were just to look at the head up, it would go another way. So. I, I don't really seek out the categories because you really can't predict when people are going to die or how they're going to die. But over the years, I've really just been building a database that has decomposition data in it from these different types of cases. And 
I'd say sometime next year, that'll probably be when I formally introduce this concept of categories of decomposition cases really to the the forensic science world. That is just, this whole thing has been so interesting and compelling. So thank you very much, David, for your time today and for talking to us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be here. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.